Oh, I don't do those. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Angular Air. I'm your host, Justin Schwarzenberger, and today we have another TIL episode for you. I believe this is TIL episode number five, so um, cranking them out now. Uh, should be pretty cool. Uh, we've all got a bunch of good stuff to, to show today, so we're looking forward to that. Let's say hi to our panelists and uh, get started. First up, we've got Alyssa Nichol. Alyssa, how's it going? Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. And we got Austin McDaniel with us, Austin. How's it going, everyone? And Mike Brocky, what's going on, Mike? Not too much. I, I, I'm feeling a little bit lacking. This is the fifth one. I haven't learned a whole lot since the last one. You haven't learned a whole lot, or you haven't remembered what you've learned to produce? I don't know. Oh, I like the way you said it more. <laughs> Let's go with that. All right, all right. You have a whole ton of stuff that you learn. You're just trying to like aggregate through what you want to show on the show. It's for. just too much. You I just can't go through it. I think accelerated learning has really triggered some accelerated forgetting. <laughs> oh, that's that's a that's a good discussion to have. You know, like like at what tipping point is it that you take in so much that now it overflows? And back to the show. <laughs> I'm pretty sure every college student could answer that question. It's called finals. That's the tipping point when you literally memorize everything. And then a week later, you have no idea what you just tested on. So <laughs> very good point. Very good point. All right. So we have a, a list of things that we want to show today. Um, all of us are going to show a little bit of just tidbits, things we've learned, things we can kind of reveal, that sort of thing that hopefully will help you as a viewer uh, add to your toolbox of, of things to tackle when you work on Angular stuff. So shall we get started? Yes? All right. Apparently, I'm going to be the one that's kicking it off. So I've got two for us today. So I will share my screen. The first one I want to uh, talk about and show is router link and router link active. Those directives, uh, those are directives we're probably familiar with using on um, anchor tags. You know, so we set up our navigation that we have for routing, and you know, we obviously use the router link to be able to um, find that click action to to do the navigation, and then we can use this router link active to identify if that route is the active route and apply a CSS class to do some styling. You know, for our link to show maybe bolded or whatnot to show that that's the, the current route that the user is on. Um, so I'm going to share my screen here. I have some stack blitzes prepared for us. And I want to show that router link and router link active uh, work on an anchor tag, but they also work on button, the button element. So we can go in here and we have basic navigation, right? We've got some, some anchor tags here. Uh, I'm just going to throw these in this footer element. I'm going to throw some buttons in here. Uh, I wonder if Stack Blitz does this. Ooh, look at that. So a little Emmet action there. I can do button um, asterisk three, and it'll make three button tags for me. That was pretty cool. All right, so I'm going to have these here. I'm going to do our same links here. So I'm going to do like home accounts and orders. All right, and then I'm just going to add these same directives on here, like so. And here. And here, let this reload. And so now we can see that our, our class is working, right? I can go to accounts, I can go to orders. Uh, the router link active is adding that class active that I have some CSS styling for. It's basically just changing the color of the, the text for that element. Um, and we can see that it, it works for um, button elements as well. So kind of cool. Um, Let's take a look at the actual uh, documentation, dive into the uh, source code for this thing real quick. See if I can find this here. Let's go to angular.io. We'll look for router link active. Go to that. I think we have a link here to the source code from this. We could probably 
where is that at? Go ahead and shout out to if any of our panelists know where this is at. Let me have many up here. No, no. Used to be a link to the source code. Does anybody remember? Nothing. Okay. No, um, nothing. Nothing. Maybe it got removed here. All right, I'll just go to it. So uh, it's probably GitHub, right? What's that code bracket thing up there do at the top? Which one? I bet you this one. Code. Ooh, that's it. Hey, good call. Boom. <clears throat> Kicking you to school, Mike. Nice. I don't know how to surf the web. All right, so I just wanted to kind of dive in here and see real quick, maybe if we can identify like how it is picking up that button element as well as the anchor element, or if it's just doing just event binding on that. Uh, kind of on the flying, this one, I didn't really have planned to dig through the source code. So I uh, was hoping that may be a little helpful, but that's one of the things in, I'll, I'll do, right? Go ahead, what are you saying? Inspect, uh, in Inspect the anchor because I think it might actually add a href tag to anchors and then do something different for buttons. Yeah, so there's the the href here. A little small. Pull this up here a little bit. Right. And then the behavior is different for buttons because there's no href there. Right, so we got it. You know, it's it's doing a click event, right? Handler at that point. Right. So I was assuming, like I said, it, I I don't know exactly where, but at some point it's going to be, you know, making that logic decision. That directive is going to be deciding on what element am I on? Do I need to do a a click? Do I need to do the, you know the href that sort of thing? But the router link active and the router link has that intelligence inside of it so that uh, we get that, right? So that was my first one. Anybody, anybody want to add on that? No? Okay, we're good. All right. Uh, and so my second one is going to be talking about uh, extending a, an Angular pipe via composition, right? And I just kind of wanted to talk over and, and take a look at um, how we could do that with inheritance versus composition and, and the difference between the two and some of the things that we run into and maybe why we would make the decision to do one or the other, right? So in this stack blitz, I have um, two pipes. And so basically the idea is that I want to extend this um, currency pipe. Angular has a currency pipe that allows you to format numbers into currency, you know, dollar amounts and that sort of thing. Um, and I want to extend that and I want to basically have my own custom pipe that says, look, if the price is below, if the value is below like 20, I want to display text that says too low to show. And then if it's above 20, then I just want to do the regular formatting. I want to leverage the currency pipe to do so. So I don't want to have to rewrite that logic, right? So I've got two pipes that I made, two custom pipes that I made, one with inheritance and, and one with composition. And so I just want to take a quick look here at the, the one I have with inheritance. In this scenario, we have you know my custom pipe that I made, and basically using the extends keyword with TypeScript to extend this currency pipe, which is the Angular currency pipe, right? And we're overriding this transform method in here. A currency pipe has a transform method, but because we're doing this inheritance, this transform method is going to be the one that's going to be called when we utilize this price inheritance pipe. And basically, we're going to take the value, look at it. If it's less than 20, I'm going to return a string too low to show. If it's greater than 20, I'm going to call the super transform method, which is the currency pipes transform method, pass the value, and return that, right? Let's take a look just quick in our app component HTML. We're using that. I have uh, four examples. I have the um, two different prices, one to show it above 20, one to show it below 20. Uh, I have my two pipes here. We'll take a look at this other one here in a minute, this price one um, that uses composition. But here's our inheritance one, right? Real similar to if you use the currency pipe, but in this case, we're using our custom one. And so that feels pretty good, works pretty well. Um, we just extended it. We're making that call. It's pretty clean, right? Um, and if we flip over and, and do our um, composition one, 
in this scenario, we want to have our price pipe and we're going to implement the pipe transform uh, interface from Angular so that we adhere to creating a new pipe. Uh, but in this case, we are going to inject in the currency pipe and do composition here so that this price pipe is going to make use of the currency pipe as a class that's being handed to it, right? Um, and in this case, we have to have a constructor to take in the currency pipe that will get dependency injected for us. Uh, and then in our transform method, it's really similar. Instead of calling super, we're just calling this.currencyPipe because we have currency pipe as a, as a class instance inside of our price pipe, right? So they line up pretty similar, uh, a little bit more here in this composition because we have to have a constructor to bring it in, right? Um, but, uh, but let's say we wanted to have this price checker service that handles the logic to determine if we're below a certain value, right? And we, we need to bring that into our price pipe, pipe so that it can use that. Um, in this scenario here where we're doing composition, we can simply bring it in, um, add another argument to our constructor, another parameter, private uh, price checker service, price checker service, right? And then in here, we can simply call this dot price checker service. And then there's a method is to load a show, hand it the value, and then we're off and running, right? So now we have this composition pipe that we have the ability to hand in, uh, well, the dependency injection is gonna bring in the currency pipe for us, the price checker service for us, right? If we do testing specs for this, we can mock out the service, we can mock out the currency pipe if we need to, or create a new currency pipe if we need to. A little bit easier to do this inversion of control and work with these things from a spec level, right? Um, but now if we go back to our pipe inheritance one, and we bring in this price checker service. Now we need a constructor, right? So we go constructor, private price checker service, service, right? And we get some TypeScript barking at us, right? And it's because we are extending the currency pipe that already has a constructor that we need to call that base constructor. So now we're like, okay, well, we can just call super, right? But that currency pipe actually has a constructor that takes in a value. It's, it's the locale. It's a string for the locale. So now we're faced with, well, we got to send that in a value, right? And at this point, we're kind of inside of our constructor for our pipe inheritance pipe. Um, it's not ideal to really do something like EN here to tell it English, because now it's hard coded that it's English version of the, of the pricing, right, for the locale. So now we're faced with, oh, well, do we provide, um, have another value in the constructor, private locale string, right, to bring that in and then just say, oh, we'll just send locale here. Um, but now we're in a scenario where we've got dependency injection going on here. So Angular is going to, with this DI, is going to try and send in some value here, but it has no idea what to send in for locale here to this constructor. So now we need like a token um, or some sort of way to tell the dependency injection system what we want it, what it should use for this locale string. So now we've kind of got this soup going on here that's we have to do more and more to kind of tackle and, and handle, right? Same way with our spec, we flip over to our spec. Now we have this same sort of scenario where we've got to do more work to try and um, alleviate that, how to handle the locale and things like that. Whereas in the composition, if we were over in the spec, right, we could new up a new currency pipe, pass it to a different locale, hand that into our price pipe and work with it, or even mock it out a little bit easier, that sort of thing. So trade-offs both ways. I'm sure some people have some opinions on that on our panel, which way you should ride with, but um, just kind of wanted to uh, illustrate. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to be like, and this way is the way you should do it, but you're leaving us to decide, like you're not going to. <laughs> well, I want to I want to have everybody to have input, right? I mean, again, there's like millions of different ways to do things, right? Um, I tend to lean towards composition over inheritance uh, because of some of these scenarios, but both ways are you know are doable. So um, just kind of want to make it aware because you dive in, and I mean, I found myself I'll dive into you know these different ways, and and feels good right away, and then I start making some changes or add a different feature, and all of a sudden it's like, oh man, this is getting messy, or oh, this is a big pain. Oh, now should I have gone that other route, right? So it's it's uh, kind of challenging there.
I think a general rule. I think a general rule. Yes, real quick, just to show that one again, the composition one. Yeah, I'll let you talk, Austin. I just wanted to see the other one up. I, th I think a general rule, like in JavaScript, that we should try to practice is using composition over inheritance because you know, we have to remember that like classes, they're kind of just sugar through our prototypical inheritance. And some of these things that like we think about classically, they're not really kind of the same concept. And so using, you know, strategies like composition over inheritance is like one of those principles that I think applies well for JavaScript. Cool. I, I yeah. think that's a good idea. Can you go back and show the uh, composition example as well? Uh, just to get the uh, contrast uh, of, to remember, remind people of the less complicated way because of the additional um, instructor parameters. Yeah, this right here, the composition yeah. one, the price pipe composition one. Yeah, so basically instead of using the actual pipe class, you're just using that pipe's transform method. Correct. And then dependency injection here, when you're injecting in the currency pipe, is actually handling the idea of mapping in the locale into the uh, creating that pipe for you. Right. Right, so we're saying, okay, at this point, dependency injection system you handle the currency pipe creation, like you said. I don't have to worry about it, whatever it takes in its values and stuff like that. Oh, it was one other thing I wanted to show because um, it, it's another one of those things that, you know, let's say you bring it up, like, okay, which one should it be, right? Well, there's, there's trade-offs. So now with this um, composition approach, right, because I've got the currency pipe coming in here with the DI system, I need to provide that, right? Um, so I actually had to go into the app module and in providers, provide the currency pipe in order for the dependency injection system to understand and know that that's what is, is throwing in there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Without, and you're saying with the other way, you don't do that. Right. Right. With the inheritance one, because we're inheriting from it. And so it's building it off of that. But because this, this is a, um, something that needs to be injected in, we need to register it. Um, and let it know that, that, hey, this is available for injection, right? This is so that it can know where to find that instance and what that instance is, that sort of thing. So another trade-off of going one way or the other, right? All right. Those are the two that I had. Um, I will relinquish control and we'll go on to the next person. Who we got next? Uh, Alyssa, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, let me see. Okay. Um, As you're getting set up. Thank you, Justin. Very nice. Thank, thank you, Justin. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I'm trying to find the button to share my screen. That one. Uh, share. Okay. Are we there? Can we? Can we see it, or did I do it wrong? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so mine is uh, the first one I actually like has something to show. And then the second one is more of like a discussion one. So um, for this one, I <laughs> Justin kind of showed it already. And I was like, dang it, I really should have gone first. Um, but I didn't know this until like, it was like a week and a half ago that I learned that you can do this in VS code. So yes, I was doing it the painful way. But have you guys heard of like Zen coding for like your your markup? I, I don't know if that's actually what it's called, but someone referenced it that way. And so it's basically like if you want to have like a UL with like an LI inside of it, you can like just press tab. So you do UL and then the little, what is it, arrow, carrot dude. And then um, you can also like go ahead and throw on like awesome class names. And apparently Justin already knew this because he did uh where you'd be like, okay, inside of here, I need three LIs, which I don't know if you need the parentheses, but you can be like times three and then it makes them for you. So yes, that is something that I learned this week. It was like a super fun VS Code shortcut. And then the other thing uh, before I go back to camera is control tick. Did you guys know that hotkey? <laughs> I just been like opening the terminal the other way. So yeah, that opens up your, your terminal in VS Code. You can toggle that view with uh, Command J. Command J? What view? What's that? 
nothing's uh, happening. Terminal. Not working for me. But if I do control tick, it toggles it. The command J doesn't do anything. Does that mean like I did something wrong? Ah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like infinitely going. I don't know how to make it stop. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Um, so am I back? Alyssa, yes. On that, um, so, yeah. So I just kind of threw that in. And I did that real quick, but yeah, I was setting it up to, you know, uh, lead into yours. Um, that parentheses, I think you can do the parentheses around. So then you can like extend out that LI if you want to do LI with a class or whatever, and then times three and do three of that right set. So, um, yeah, I love that stuff. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. Have you all been using that like this whole time? And I'm just <laughs> over here typing out the whole thing. <laughs> I felt like such a nublet when I learned that. I was like, oh, God, there's a better way. So, yeah, please let me know in the comments if you two were like just learning this for the first time. Because, oh, man, there's so many cool things about VS Code that you're like, once you actually start like learning how it's like le not just learning TypeScript, not just learning VS Code, but like learning how to optimally use VS Code that you're like, oh. This is why. So, <laughs> um, so the other thing that I want to talk about, and I really want to make it a group discussion, so please interject with comments or corrections. So I've been learning in JRX lately. Um, and so I wanted for those, because, you know, there's, I think there's a bit of a population who are just like me who have gotten by in the Angular community without learning anything reactive at all. Um, because it's a, it's kind of scary. <laughs> B, uh, it's not for all use cases. So it is very, very possible to get by as an Angular developer without needing a state manage manager thus far. And so I was like, all right, biting bullet, we're learning it. So I wanted to do um, an over like a helicopter view um, verbally, and I I would love because this, this is gonna be like. As a learner, this is what I have for you. But then if you guys could like jump on it and be like, actually, to be a little bit more accurate, because I really don't want to leave the audience with something inaccurate. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> uh, we're going to start off with Redux. We're going to hit RxJS, and then we're going to go into NGRX and, so, um, and talk about actions, reducers, and effects. Um, so yes, uh, Redux, as I've learned it, is like a pattern for programming and it kind of comes from uh, at least again from what i've learned from like combing the internet um the reducer method that's like on like strings or functions in javascript which the reduce method it like it could like take a string of numbers and it like it's like one two three and you call reduce on it it'll give you like six and so it, it like combines those but if you call it on like a bunch of functions, it'll like run through and give you the results of those functions. All right. So is there any corrections at this point on what Redux is <laughs> and why it was named Redux you know, or any extra tidbits? No, I'm getting Okay. So RxJS and actually a bunch of like Rx things, because my friend was telling me he's an iOS programmer and he's like, yeah, there's like an Rx for Swift, I guess, or something. And so I'm assuming a lot of different languages have these patterns or enforce enforcements. And so um, my understanding is that RxJS is like a library that has a bunch of methods that allows you to use this Redux pattern in JavaScript. And that's why it's like Rx for the reactive part and then JS for the JavaScript part. Is there anything we want to like add to that definition? Is that pretty accurate? I'm like getting a blank face from Mike and I don't know if that's a happy face or a sad face. <laughs> No, 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 no. It had nothing to do with you. I was just playing okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm like, if that is a bad RxJS, somebody can, you know, holler back, yo. But um, so that's my understanding of RxJS. And I actually learned from Bonnie, which I'm super sad she's not on this show, um, that uh, apparently Angular uses RxJS under the hood now. Has that been like a long time thing? Does anybody know? No. no like, actually, RxJS is the only dependency that Angular has. Uh, okay. So uh, the only external dependency, I guess. Yeah, it's been there since the beginning for the um, HTTP stuff. Okay. HTTP uses it, router uses it, uh, and forms uses it as well. So with this like reactive programming thing, and now that Angular is like using RxJS, do you guys ever think that like one day um, it might just like be built into Angular? Or is that like not a not a thing? I don't know. I like that was my first thought was, oh, are they like gonna like merge it one day and you're just doing instead of doing like reactive programming, like you're just doing Angular or no? 
just thoughts. <laughs> I think the idea of doing reactive programming, since Angular can be run in a very reactive manner, that it's kind of up to you as the app developer to define how reactive your application is going to be and how much you're going to be taking advantage of the reactive nature of some of the uh, APIs that are available to you. Okay. So that on top of, so in GRX, the next definition is, uh, is it basically like an Angular implementation of these like Redux patterny ideas? Because I know, you know, that it's all about how you have this immutable, like holy mother of state that um, you're not supposed <laughs> to be able to like modify. Um, but as far as like, what is NGRX's specific relationship to RxJS? Does it, like it uses it behind the scenes, like, uh, like TypeScript and Angular, that kind of relationship? Yeah, so NGRX implements the concept of Redux and Redux uh, could almost be considered as a state management pattern um, because it's very minimal in how it works and like the ideas around it. And NGRX and basically leverages Redux or uh, RxJS for like the action streams and uh, when you select values out, you're getting observables rather than, you know, uh, static properties. So it uses it really under the hood um, to give you observable values out that you can then bind in your Angular applications. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I was watching a fun, I think Ben Lesh has a fun video on Egghead about the differences between um, promises and observables. And so Bonnie's like, yeah, did you know he's like, was he... Did he write the RxJS stuff for Angular? Is that was him, right? No, am I getting that totally wrong? <laughs> I'm he, kidding. If like looks, he is the primary author of RxJS, starting with version five. Okay, okay, uh, yeah. So I had no idea. I was like, what? So yeah, I knew it was cool, but I didn't know it was that cool. So <laughs> and, and to be clear, RxJS is a library completely independent from Angular. Just mm -hmm. that Angular heavily uses uh, the library. Well, I just know, I was saying for Angular meaning, because there's like um, RxJS for like, or like React and Vue and stuff, right? Like there's different, I think, or it's is the it same the same? R it's the same oh, it's the same RxJS. They don't have different versions. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And RxJS spawned off of uh, something starting at Microsoft called uh, Reactive Extensions. So there's actually Rx for many, many different languages, uh, .NET, Java, Swift, Go, quite a few. Okay. Okay. So those are the ones that are different, but the ones for all of these JavaScript frameworks is the same RX. Got it. Okay. Okay. I thought they had like different, they were just like giving them different names or something, but it was the same thing. That makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. I don't. One more thing to the yeah. RX kind of, and, and how Redux and RxJS kind of fits in the, in the mix. Right. So uh, like uh, you guys were mentioning uh, the Redux part is like the, the state part of it, right. And the pattern for the state. Uh, the RxJS part is the part for querying that data, um, but almost making it like what you kind of think of as like real time, right? Like like delivered updates. So if the state changes, the RxJS part with the observables allows your components in other places to receive the latest version of that state once it changes, right? So rather than just saying, I want this data, it's like, I want this data and oh, if it changes, also send it to me, right? And it makes that bridge and that connection. Because the components have these listeners or like it's basically, is it the, or is it the effects that have the listeners or no, that's just NGRX stuff. That's nothing to do with RxJS. So you're just saying the observable inside the component is listening. Yeah. Like the observable part, the RxJS part is kind of there to wire up that, okay, as state changes, it will kind of deliver that out to the different places that need it. So now it's, it's rather than just like a, a query system of your state. Now you have this almost like kind of real time, right? That that you get that whole flow and, and that reactive type of programming tied in. Okay, very cool. So um, beyond that, I wanted to talk a little bit about which I'm taking a ton of time. Um, actions 
um, reducers and effects. So it's my understanding that you have this main mother of state and you're like, hi state. And you can, as Bonnie said, think of it more as a Corvette and less of a pickup truck. And what she meant by that is you don't want to be like tacking on every little thing. So like if you have like a form, um, as you input things into it, maybe don't necessarily tack those on until you save the whole form and then you can save the form state then. Um, but it basically is just all of these different states from across your app. And I heard it said that it's like anything that you want to share between components or share across the app is something that um, belongs in state. And um, and you might be thinking, as I was thinking, well, we have this immutable state. We're not supposed to change it. Then how do we actually update it? And so um, as I started learning about actions, um, it's basically instead of changing the state or modifying the state, it's like overriding it because you use the spread operator and you're like, hey, here's the existing state, comma, the extra crap we're putting into it. And then all of that is returned. And so is, is that a good way of saying it basically that you're, you're overriding the state instead of modifying it? Yeah, I think so. Like changing it, right? Yeah, yeah you're definitely not, you know, modifying it. <laughs> so you can but uh, <laughs> i know it's, i saw a video on that and they were like actually there's nothing stopping you from doing this so you you could um but don't and so um so yeah it's been a really fun time actually diving into that but uh keeping all of the definitions clear has been a hassle so i hope if anyone is in the same boat this helps clarify a little bit and i'm going to actually rewatch this when we get off and write down what you said justin because those were like the perfect definitions like I was like oh this is what I've been looking for and so <laughs> I will write them down and tweet them out for people uh can you give us the same thing for because you gave us that for Redux and for RxJS can you give us the same your abbreviated uh like definition for NGRX because that was just beautiful <laughs> yeah so um yeah I think it's it's what I think of um as a good starting point for that is that you have this concept of a database, right? A data store for your state, your application state, stuff that you want to share across components just throughout your application, right? Like this is the current snapshot of any given moment in time of my app. Maybe the, the current user, the orders that they're looking at, um, you know, the, the order that they've selected, that sort of thing. It's basically like a snapshot, right? And that's your, your data store, that's your, your state. Um, and then you have this way to query the state, like querying a database, right? And these are the, your selectors that you do. Um, and from those selectors, it basically, it's a query that's kind of like this real-time query. You say, I want this data, and then, oh, I want to connect it up so that if that data changes, I'll get notified about it. I don't have to manually run the query each time, right? So you get that from your selectors. And then the reducers is like making changes to your data, right? So you say, I, I have this, I want to dispatch an action, which is like a query, like an update query, right? But really it's like a change query and that's changing your, your state. Um, and then when that state changes, it goes out to everybody who's listening for it, right? And connected for it. And then you've got all this other advanced stuff that you can do on it, um, effects, store freeze, routing, all that stuff. And that stuff just kind of builds off of that core concept, right? I love it. I love it. And I will be writing it down after this. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, uh, VS Code Shortcuts and then a bit of a helicopter overview of NGRX was what I wanted to contribute. So I think it's Broco next, maybe? Whoa, I've got something for you first. Oh, yay! <laughs> I, I am very much in favor of the idea of the holy mother of state. <laughs> I'm going to be disappointed if you don't submit a pull request <laughs> to use that variable name to internally manage the state that's in NGRX. The holy mother okay, of state. The I'm holy mother, mother of state. <laughs> Absolutely. Whatever you write up, make sure you include that terminology. It's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Well, it just helped me remind myself of like, don't modify it. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yes, please teach us more, Mike, about your, your stuff. Now take it over. <laughs> no questions from the chat for Alyssa or anything else? So I can oh, I put this check. off a little bit longer. Or... I'm a horrible person. <laughs> no? Okay. Oh, somebody said nice FYI parentheses aren't required for Emmett if you're just doing a simple li times three but i guess oh. if you want to throw on the class or something it is required i haven't played with it no, yet it's not. also what is that what is that word we're using em emit emmet emmet e, e m m e t 
is it like an eventimeter? Is that what that word is from? Or no, because no, no, that's E M I T. Oh. Um, <laughs> I mean, the E may be a I, so it might be in it. I don't know. We had to consult know. whoever <laughs> named it, right? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Um, I, I, I'm going to add on to the ideas of sharing some Emmet and some Zen coded um, first. But the other thing that I'm going to talk about and show is something called App Shell. Uh, and people are like, huh, what? App Shell, what's that? So App Shell is kind of like the idea of taking a route uh, from your application and rendering it at compile time so that it actually gets included directly as your HTML to get a faster uh, first paint of a portion of your application uh, for your users. It's kind of like conceptually a little bit like universal in that it's running at the server, except for the fact that it's being rendered at build time uh, so that you can give a faster, meaningful first paint uh, uh, something so that your users see something rather than just the weight indicator as it initializes the application. So, oh, hey, I'm going to have to use this little thing to share my screen. Uh, I think I'm showing the right one. Are you seeing me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Good, good, good. Visual, virtual, uh, yeah, audio confirmation. So the other thing, so we have the idea of doing like inside of a div, do multiple divs uh, times three. Uh, you can also undo that. And then uh, the other thing that I want to show is inside here, you could do lorem. So you could actually do lorem ipsum and say you want three paragraphs of that inside of each one. What? Oh, yeah. What? What? No, yep. this is not built in. Is that like a... That's, that's built in. Oh, shut your face. <laughs> yep, you, you can also do sibling. So inside of, the, uh, inside of that div, I would like to have a div and also a span. So I want those to be siblings. Uh, oh, I forgot the sibling one, right? Yeah. Which a lot of these are similar to the CSS selectors, which was like super yeah, helpful. You classes, you can do IDs as well. <laughs> hey, hold on a second. Ty start typing again and, and chill for a minute because you also see in that VS code, you get the overlay of what it's going to be like. Oh, yeah. Um, which is, yeah. I D. So it gives you that preview right there. <gasps> yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. awesome. And then what? Yeah, oh, I went away. But yeah, uh, so yeah, that was uh, just uh, adding on to that a little bit. Also, I did see that um, in here, oh, where'd it go? Uh, command J is toggle the panel. So once you use control backtick to be able to get to your terminal, you can use uh, command J. I'm not sure why that was working. Why would it oh, so once it's open, do command J. I'll try. Maybe, do you have to have the panel selected? No, you're, you don't. You just press it. Correct, um, yeah, I, I will and say, oh, I want to do something in terminal and tap control J. And, <laughs> and again, these are just built in. It's nothing we, it's not Correct, a package. Yep. Okay. Correct. I didn't do anything special there. We should do a whole show on this. I know. There's so many nifty shortcuts. As I watch other people program, I'm like, what did you just do? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Back to where I was. Sorry. So all I've done so far and this uh, code window here is I ran the idea of creating a new application. I call this App Shell Demo. I may have called this just App Shell. I don't remember. Uh, App Shell. So we're just going to, yeah. yeah. That's what, exactly what I said. It's just uh, NG new, a new app called App Shell. And then I included routing. And routing, all that really did is inside my app components and Hey, look at me. I've got a router outlet as well as having a routing or a router module that hey, I haven't defined any routes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up app shell for this app. So all I'm going to do is type really fast, uh, <laughs> uh, copy and paste or uh, rather than typing. And so just what this is, is I'm generating a running a schematic called app shell and I'm specifying that my client project is app shell. And where that came from is if you look inside the angular.json, when I created this and ran this project, it created a project in here called app shell. And the second one called app shell E2E, which well, we're not too concerned about at this point. And then I want to also create a universal project, which is the one that's going to use to be able to render my app shell um, at build time. So I'm just going to go ahead and run that. Is it running? Is running. 
And it's also going to do some NPM installs. And while that's running, and hopefully it doesn't run too, too slowly while I have Hangouts open, although I found that to be the case, uh, let's take a look at some of the changes that it made, because it made quite a few changes here. So it updated our Angular.json, updated our package.json to include platform server, because it needs to be able to um, run the universal uh, bits to be able to uh, render uh, via node. Uh, updated our main.ts, so it's going to listen to when it's going to bootstrap the app, like the module. How 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 are we seeing these changes? Just I'm in the Git tab here. There's a Git tab. <laughs> Mother of God, <laughs> I really need to explore VS Code. Keep so going. What makes GIL episode so great, right? Is because they surface all these other little gems on top of the stuff we're showing. I love it. Mm -hmm. So um, it updated our main file to, to update when we're going to bootstrap our application. It added a second main so that we could run our server piece, uh, separate TS config for server. Uh, it updated our app module to be able to inject in our, what did that do? Oh no, it updated the browser module and also included the routing module. Uh, it added the with server transition uh, to the server app, uh, added a server module, and it added a new uh, component as well for our app shell. But the main thing I wanted to look at was the angular.json, what it changed there. So inside of our scroll, 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 inside of our, oh, does it let me collapse these in here? No, it does not. Okay. I don't think inside, I don't think it inside this diff it does, but in the normal one, it would. No problem. So what it did is it added two new architect targets or two new targets. So one called server, which is basically a way of building our application for a server route, as well as one called app shell. So that has nothing to do with the project name, but that has more to do with the idea of building it in an app shell mode. And what it's saying is that I want to build the browser target using this configuration here, which is the app shell project and using the build configuration. And if I if I can open these up side by side, angular.json. Oh, you're going to close the other, aren't you? All right. So going back to where we were. Uh, so it's saying to use the app shell build. So if we look under here under app shell, we have something called build. So it's basically saying, hey, yeah, that's the one that I want to build for the client side of things. All right, that's where I want to integrate it. And then I want to also build the server side of things, which is this new one that was created up here. And then the route that I want to render when I run my app shell is something called shell. And if I go in, uh, where does it define that? Routes. I have this route defined somewhere. Uh, actually, what was the name of that route? I'll say it again. Called shell. This is not probably not the best way to look through for this. Uh... <laughs> it reminds me of the other day I was looking for like this or something stupid and I did that and <laughs> Zach looked over and was like, why don't you just look for dots everywhere? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, shut up. Right. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, well, that's not what I wanted. Uh, I'm going to build my application. So there's no command to be able to just build app shell to be able to run multiple. So run is a way of running this project and this target. So if I wanted to just build a, the application as I normally did, um, I would just say, all right, whoa, actually, ah, stop it. So I would just say, all right, normally this is would be the equivalent of running ng build because I'm saying, all right, I want to run the app shell project and I want to run the build target. And that build target is the one that is up here. But there's no command tied to the app shell target. So you can use ng run to run it specifically. So oh. in the app shell project, I want to run the app shell target. Make sense? Yes. OK. So what that's going to do is it's actually going to compile both sides of the application, the client side build. Um, target as well as the server target and kind of merge those two outputs together into the index.html. Maybe. So any questions while the build's running? No? Okay. 
So target well <laughs> So target is second and right after the colon is the target. Yeah, so it's project target project, and, and target. the third one is actually the configuration. There's so, a third one. So under here I could specify uh, the name of the configuration if uh, one existed. Okay. okay. What just happened? Why why must what did it There's work? Some warning about node modules. That's okay. Things. Um, so I'm going to look under my disk folder and here created two things because it ran two different builds. Uh, but the main one here is app shell. So if I look at the index.html, and I'm just going to format the document just to make it a little bit easier to read. You notice down here that I have app root with all of our normal contents. And then down at the bottom, underneath the app, uh, Excuse me, in the router edit below that, where it actually renders the app shell, um, is actually rendering that component uh, output directly into the index.html. So, what it did is it took this app shell component, where is that? There it is under this folder here. So, it took that, this, com this uh, component, and rendered it at build time and placed it directly inside the index.html. So that it will be presented uh, without any other, uh, without JavaScript having to load or anything else. But you can put other content within here uh, to produce your app shell to get an immediate paint as soon as the HTML, the index.html gets uh, processed by the browser. Oh, cool. Can you show us the format thing slower this time? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Command Shift P brings up the command palette. And then I just type format. Okay, got it. You're the best. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> and for a lot of things, I don't even remember for the the shortcuts because it's just there. Uh, it's just easier to bring that up and type it. So, Mikey, this looks pretty simple. Like, should we just be making app shells as part of our routine of building apps? So being that I work on mostly uh, features for the CLI and not so much with Angular development, I'm not well-versed in best practices of when to use it. Um, but I don't think of very, I can't really think of any negatives because if I just wanted my app shell component to say, hey, app is loading or something is happening, um, then that will be presented immediately to the user. Or if I wanted to have something like uh, nav bar with inside of it, some anchor with three anchor tags, right? And I could do that. Oh, what? Oh, because that's where I recognize what nav is. All right, how about give dot nav? Um, I'm not annotating. Oh, retype the three. Yeah. Nav. Um, inside of that, I want to have an anchor tag times three. There we go. If I want to have uh, something like that, uh, some sort of app shell where it has a top navigation uh, or sidebar or something like that, that actually it looks like a shell of your application, you can do that. It's kind of interesting because, um, you know, before we had app shell kind of an approach, we had a scenario where we have Angular, we got to wait for Angular to bootstrap to target that element, right? And then to add Angular and add all of our components and stuff. So we'd find ourselves maybe taking our index HTML file and adding in some static HTML and CSS to handle like this app is loading, right? Maybe with a loading spinner or whatnot. And what this app shell is kind of doing that same approach, right? But it's named app shell. So it leans itself towards the thought process of Maybe it's the the shell of my application with like the nav that you just showed, right? That I want to get to the end user right off the bat, um, right. which can potentially be be better than maybe a loading spinner, right? But um, but when you decide, I wonder, like, do I want to do that? Do I want to maybe utilize app shell, but just for a hey, we're working on getting things ready, that sort of thing. Yeah, I I would utilize it for the like I said, you said the idea of presenting the shell of your application so that they see the idea of what looks to be your application 
way without any JavaScript uh, rendering initially to be able to see something because uh, you, you don't want your users, especially on an initial first load to say, oh yeah, this site's taking forever. I'm just going to abandon it. But to be able to get a meaningful paint to, so they have the, at least the mindset of, hey, something's happening. I'm getting content uh, right away. I think that's what you're doing is trying to get your users to say, hey, yeah, this is working. I'm going to stay on this site versus just navigating right away because you see a spinner or you don't see anything happening. I think one good point uh, you ask, like, should we use this all the time? Um, I think it really like depends, right? Like some cases, like this is great. Some cases though, you want to actually render the entire page out using universal, not just the shell there. And those cases are for like SEO or like, you know, Twitter thumbnails and things like that. Uh, and that doesn't really solve this problem. Yes, um, but what it does is it adds another piece of information into your toolbox. And the, what you're trying to do as a developer is to come up with all these different tools that you know what they are, or at least know about them, maybe not if you've played with it or not, but the idea of knowing what's out there is so that you could take those ideas and decide, hey, this is what will best solve the problem that I'm trying to solve. And I think you end up using it in a conjunction with Universal, right? In that scenario where you say, I want to pre-render or, or Universal and pre-render, right? So I want to pre-render 20 pages because I want to have them SEO available, right? But my site has 25 pages. What do I do with those other five pages, right? Those other five ones could utilize the app shell to have something to present to the end user, right? Before they get to that. So you could kind of, you know, like you mentioned, it's another tool in the toolbox that you can aggregate all of those together to, to solve all of these problems. Yeah, and I and I think um, one of the things you mentioned, you mentioned both pre-rendering and universal. Um, universal doesn't necessarily have to be pre-rendering. Universal can be on-demand rendering as well, so that your universal pieces are you could. Can you like just for those special audience members do a quick definition of on-demand versus what? Um, I don't. Yeah, what <laughs> what the, the two different things and what they are? Yes, please. <laughs> so universal is the idea of rendering your application in a node environment or using node, not necessarily on the client's machine, on the server. And pre-render is the idea of taking that idea of doing universal rendering at build time or in advance. Uh, whereas the counterpoint that I was making is that you could use Universal to render your application on request as a as you could hook it into something like Express or whatever or whatever web server you're using to um. call into Node to be able to say, "Hey, user requested this route, which means I need to re uh, render that route and tell Universal to render." That. Oh, so on request is like while the app is running live, like. Perfect. Okay. Cool. And I got yelled at by Austin, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> You gotta save time for the rest of us. Austin, this is why we let you go first. <laughs> that's true. That's true. All right, I'm gonna share some stuff with you guys. So I made um, these are a couple of things like I actually didn't know about, and I I, I thought they were kind of cool. So one thing um, that like I don't know, like unless you just know this, like you wouldn't even think to do this is like. Actually, in components, you can inject the parent component into it. So my hello component is a child of my app component, right? So I've got app component up here. It's got a property called name. Then hello component is in that template. And what I can do is I can pass my app component in the constructor. And then what I can do is I can actually reference properties in that uh, in that parent controller or component. So here I've got when I click the button, what it's going to do is it's going to, you know, give me an alert with the name of the application. So oh, you can't see alert boxes and uh, hangouts. Sorry. You'll just have to take my word for it. Can you like, oh, yeah, never mind that. You'll just have to take my word for it. <laughs> you're, sh you're sharing your whole screen, right? Not just this? Yeah. Oh, okay. No. Okay, we can do this. All right, sweet. So 
this is really helpful for when you're like designing components and right like they're really intertwined right like my parent or my children need to be able to communicate with my parent and they're like very coupled together uh an example of this would be like if you've got some type of like uh uh selection directive where you've got uh, a user can you know basically we'll do some markup here basically i've got this and then and then underneath there so what we can do is we can have the selection directive actually have the model on it and then the my selector when you click this it can inject the selection and then add it to the model so you kind of have like a single source of truth on who has your model and things like that okay. so that's example number one any questions yeah so when would i decide i need to do that over like an input um so generally generally what i try to do is i try to keep everything like uh children uh you know not realize not you know know about their parents because then you're kind of tightly coupling things um so there's certain scenarios where it really makes sense and you need this kind of like interrupt between parent and child but in general i i don't think it's that good of a practice to do on a day-to-day -day. but it's something that like probably you didn't know that you could do because i would have never even thought to do that i got a, i got a tough question uh does that work with routing like if a, if that child component is rendered next to a router outlet that's inside this app component um i believe it would because it kind of just walks up the chain so think about it like dependency injection right like it's got a chain of dependencies and it's just resolving it's just injecting the one that it can find closest that that's where i could, if that worked i could see where that could be a potential like why over an input right because you can't really hand an input ideally to a routed component right so talking about dependency injection uh my next one is also um pretty interesting so a lot of times when we're developing applications, we have components that kind of, um, you know, maybe they have different providers, right? Like here, I've got this food uh, service in my hello component, and then child component also has a food service. But what if, you know, usually when we inject things, what we have is food service right here is this provider. But what if when we injected something, we wanted to actually be able to get the parenting provider or the closest parent provider to that? So this skip self-decorator actually allows us to uh, go up a level and basically skip the provider in my context. And this is really helpful for when you're building things like feature modules or things like that, where you have like kind of one global configuration um, and then like each child can override that configuration, but you always want to have a single source of truth up your chain in your, in your root configuration. So is this essentially saying that if food service wasn't provided up the chain, then this component will get have it instantiated there. But if it is provided up the chain, then go ahead and use the one that's already there. Um, it will, uh, use the parent one. So if, if I were to not, if I were to um, not provide this, it would still use the parent one. If I were to not do through service, not do skip self, it would use the local one here. So it gives me the ability to like say, I don't want this provider, I want the parent one instead. But is it, if there is no parent one in this case, like the way you have it right now, if there's no parent one, right? If it hasn't been provided up the chain, what will happen? Good question. Easy to tell. Still worked. So I actually did an alert there, so you couldn't see it. If we go and we look at this, 
we open our console here, it still provide it still it still worked. But now if I provide this one, it's still going to work here too. So it's kind of like saying, I prefer the one upstream, but if there's none upstream, I know how to, this is how I want you to create one, which is the one that I provide right here, right? Yep, pretty much. Very so cool. it's, it's, it's like one of those like super like in the weeds uh, dependency injection things, but like I actually didn't know about this. And I like when I discovered it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's so many use cases for this when you're building out like complex relationships between modules and things like that. And then I got only got one last one. So a lot of times uh, we see people that have providers and you know, maybe I've got like a a, a service here called my service. And I want this service to actually run when the application starts up, right? And so what a lot of times people do is they'll just inject my service in the like master component. You actually don't have to do that. And I really like this solution a lot better. There's actually an app initializer token um, and you can, uh, you declare multi because it's a multi uh, target injection you give it the app initializer, and then you can say, here's my dependencies. So my service is a dependency here. And um, I'm not actually doing anything with that, so I'm just gonna give it a new function. So let's change this to console.log. Now you'll see my application started up. Super cool. Like, let's refresh this real quick for the, oh, messed up. My application started up, high was automatically logged. So now I don't have to actually couple this service to my app component to get it to start up when my application starts up. So real quick, if I were, if that service, like my service were to, to depend upon or have another service injected to it, like my other service, um, would that need to be provided as an app initializer or just as a regular service? Um, what you would do is um, you would you would basically like, it would know how to resolve it, right? Like if we were to add another one here, we already know that like we have a dependency chain and it would resolve it upstream for you, I believe. Perfect. Just in case if somebody has their services broken out into multiple smaller services and they wanted to be able to utilize some other service at that point through dependency injection that it would still work. Yep, I, I believe so. Cool. Yeah, that, I really like the app initializer because it's that thing where you sit there and go, okay, I want this service code to run when my app starts. Where do I put that? Do I put that in my app component like you mentioned? You know, No, you can have this way to do it. So it, yeah, it's it's different, great way. I love it. Um, real quick, just so that everybody can see fully, uh, can you scroll up initializer token is actually coming from? Is that being imported from somewhere? Yep, it's being imported from Angular Core. Thank you. Sweet guys, thanks for letting me share. I hope uh, someone might learn something. Those are things I had like no idea about until like you're in the weeds and you need to figure something out and there's some interesting tidbits. You, um, you're not done yet. You need to share something that you used Emmet for because everybody else has shared something about Zen coding and Emmet. So you're halfway you there. <laughs> I don't use Emmet. I don't use that fancy stuff. It you gets in my way. <laughs> What's funny about Emmet is like, I always end up getting in there and, and you know, flying through that in the Zen coding and stuff. And I'm like, this is awesome. This is awesome. Then all of a sudden I sit there and go, I want to construct this complex set of nested stuff. And so now I spend like more time figuring out like the chain. How to do stuff. it. In order to go. Like, oh, Wait, am I really being more productive? I don't oh know. Oh God, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't need more complications in my life. I can type it. Oh my wordy gertie. Listen to your negativity. <laughs> All right, well, we had a ton of information on the show. That was awesome. I love it. Love it. Should we, uh, anybody have any picks or are we kind of good for today? Anybody want to shout anything <laughs> out before we close, the shop, close up shop? I've got one quick pick. 
uh, family recently went and saw Incredibles 2, and dare I say, it may be better than the original. It was absolutely phenomenal. You could upset many a millennial by saying that. It better be good, man. <laughs> it, it was exceptional. I really liked it. I've got one pick. Uh, those of you who use Docker, there's like the Docker Kygmatic thing, uh, which just comes out of the box, and it's never really like worked very well for me. I found this really cool tool called DocStation. It's free. And uh, it can like manage your Docker containers. It gives you stats about it. I'm pretty sure it's an Electron app, so that's pretty cool too. But that also means it probably takes like 1.5 gig of memory to run. But it's, that's a side note. Uh, but it's really cool. It's called DocStation, and you can get it at DocStation.io. Very cool. All right, I have a pick. Lisa, do you have a pick? I'm the pickless one, though, sir. I do not. <laughs> All right, so I've got a pick. It's gaming-related. Uh, anybody played Uncharted, the Uncharted series on the PlayStation? Any of our panelists? No? Oh, man, okay. So it's like there's like four iterations of it, something like that, right? And it's got this main character, Nathan Drake, and there's talks of making a movie about it. And uh, this dude in the, in the game looks a lot like Nathan Fillion uh, from Firefly, if anybody knows him, right? Uh, and so... Of course, the internet all wants Nathan to play Nathan in the movie, and there's no word on that happening or whatnot, but there's a fan, live-action fan film that they just put out that Nathan Fillion starred in for Uncharted. And I haven't watched it yet, but I'm anxious to watch it. So uh, go look that up if you're a fan of Uncharted and Nathan Fillion and Firefly and whatever. That's my is, it, is it uh, PlayStation only, I'm assuming? Uh, yeah, that, that's the bummer about that title, right, is that it's a PlayStation exclusive. Um, and, uh, yeah, but we don't, anyway, I hope it's good. I don't know. I just endorsed it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's a good though. It's got Nathan in it. So it's gotta be good. Right. I don't know. That's my thing. All right. That's a show. That's a wrap. We will catch everybody next week. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good one. Later.